Hey, uh, if you got your Bibles, I'll invite you to open to Luke chapter 1. We're in a series called Witnesses to the Advent. We're looking each week during this Advent season at one of the different witnesses who got to have a part in telling the story of the coming of the Messiah. Also, just in case maybe you missed this last week, we handed out an Advent devotional to all who were here last week. Uh, If you didn't get one, we have a, a few left. They're out at the Connect desk. I would request maybe, you know, if you're a married couple, maybe just one for the household so that we can make sure uh, the resources are available to everybody. If you prefer, though, there is a free PDF of this up on the website, on our church's website, or you can even just search it. It's, it's available to download for free if you prefer digital. But these are just short verses and short readings for you uh, to be following along with during Advent. But today we're in Luke chapter 1, looking at the angels. And I'm going to invite uh, Caitlin to come, and she's going to do our scripture reading for us today. This is God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. Thank you. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this, this story. Uh, God, this, this private meeting between uh, your daughter, Mary, and your messenger, Gabriel. God, thank you that it was written down and preserved for us. Uh, thank you that we get this peek uh, behind the curtain, as it were, to see this incredibly good news, incredibly hopeful, uh, grace-filled news And I pray today that you'd prepare our hearts to receive this news. And I pray, God, that from that, you'd prepare our hearts to share this good news. God, would you guard my lips? Help me to only speak that which is in line with the truth of your word and helpful for building us all up in your grace. And God, we give this time to you in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So last week, I I spent a little bit of time teasing some of you for not being able to wait to find out what your Christmas presents were, okay? And uh, we got real. Things got real real quick. Uh, I don't see Ashton here at this service, but, you know, a grown adult woman sitting with her mother who is calling her out for still trying to find out her presence ahead of time. It was a joyful time for me to get to witness. But I want to ask a question, okay? Different angle. How many of you, when you buy a present for somebody, it is like 
all that you can do to keep your mouth shut without telling them ahead of time what it is that you got for them. Is there anybody here like that? Okay. Surprise, I'm like that. If I get somebody a gift, it's like, I just want to tell you because I'm so excited about getting to deliver good news. How many of you like have a really good poker face? You're just as silent and stony as the grave. Anybody here? A few of you? Oh, they're, they're actually playing their poker face right now. They're like, I won't, I won't tell. I'm not going to let you know. You'll never know. Oh, wow, good job. That's not me. That's not me. And that's probably not a lot of us. I think when we're, when we're in a good place, when our hearts are in a good place, we, we anticipate that joy, that delight of getting to see someone open that present or hear that good news. Is there anything better than getting to deliver good news? I was thinking about this this week. Um, earlier this week, it was kind of like all over the news, not just local, but national, that uh, Seattle is going to get an NHL hockey team. Is anybody excited about hockey, right? And I was, I was watching the press conference happen, and I'm like, the guy that got to come out and deliver the news, like, how did he get to be the one to deliver that good news? How did he get to be the hero after months, years of behind the scenes, you know, red tape and bureaucracy and fundraising and all this stuff that those of you who listen to sports radio, you've been hearing about for, for several years. Finally, this one guy got to be the one messenger to come out and deliver the gospel of the NHL in Seattle. And uh, if they don't name the team the Seattle Freeze, I quit. I'm walking out. That's it's the only appropriate name for this team. So here's the deal. It's, it's a really good thing, a really joyful thing to get to deliver good news. And as we see in this story today, the angel Gabriel is the one out of all of the hosts of heaven, out of all of the multitudes, the tens of thousands, that we don't even know, millions of angels that there are, Gabriel is the one whom God selected to go and deliver this good news. And so I want to talk about Gabriel, and I want to tell his story, and I want to tell the story of this this young woman, Mary, receiving this good news. But I was watching uh, the movie It's a Wonderful Life this week, How many of you guys know the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Okay. Uh, I'm going to say something controversial. That's not a Christmas movie. It has nothing to do with Christmas until like the last 30 seconds of it. And it's just like depressing. And then like, ah, happy. Okay. The end. Like, it's just, what is up with that movie? But of all the things that bother me about that movie the most, it's the theology of angels. Okay. Uh, How many of you know, there's a lot of superstition and folk theology out there when it comes to the subject of angels. I was reading through some statistics. Belief in angels is as popular as it ever was in the United States of America. Even as we grow uh, theoretically more and more secular as a country, people still, upwards of 85%, still believe in something like an angel. But the problem is, is we have all sorts of wrong ideas and, and, and wrong theology. And so I want to tell the story of Gabriel, but before I do, I want to just spend a little bit of time kind of sorting out our thinking so that we can think biblically and truthfully about this subject of angels. So if you're a note taker, congratulations. This first half of the sermon is for you. Let's talk about what even are angels. In the Bible, they go by a couple of different names, but the the most common thing that you see translated as angel is the word messenger. In the Old Testament Hebrew, the, the word malach just means messenger. And in the New Testament Greek, it's angelos, Angelos is where we get our word angel. It just means a messenger. And what's a little bit confusing is both in Hebrew and in Greek, that word can be used for a human messenger or it can be used for a divine messenger. 
If there's a, a king or some noble person, they, they send a messenger to go deliver their news. And what's really confusing is when you read these stories of these messengers coming, sometimes it's hard to know, is this a human messenger or is it a divine messenger? With almost every single time that one of these messengers appears, they appear like a human. Contra the paintings. Actually, that's where, you know, things like the bishop's wife or it's a wonderful life. It actually is a little bit accurate. They just show up. They look like a person. If you read, like, for example, if you read in the book of Genesis, when, when God sends angels to bring judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're talking with Abraham's nephew, Lot. They're having a conversation. They just look like regular old people. And Lot thinks that they're just regular old people. And somewhere around the time where the angels strike the villagers with blindness and rain down burning sulfur on the city, Lot goes, hey, wait a minute. These might not just be regular old people. So the basic word is messenger. The second word that we see sometimes used, though, is Elohim. And this one is particularly interesting. So if you are, if you've heard me teach on, you know, various passages in the Old Testament, you know that the word Elohim means God. It means God kind of in the generic sense. You know how we, we use the word God in, in, in English in a variety of senses. We might talk about God, like the one true God of the Bible. But then some, sometimes people say things like, oh, he's a, he's a rock and roll God. It's like, oh, they don't mean like the one true God. They just use it in a generic sense. The word Elohim is kind of like that. In the Bible, it can refer to the one true God. It can also refer to false gods. Like in Deuteronomy, uh, God tells uh, the people through Moses, hey, don't worship any of those false Elohim, false gods. But it also can be used of the angels, these supernatural beings. There's a, there's a verse in Psalm 8, Psalm 8, 5, talking about, what, you know, the, the passage, what is man that you're mindful of us? It says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. It's Elohim. And different translations, depending on what translation you're used to using or raised with, some of them say you made him a little lower than God. Some, past, some translations say a little lower than the angels. The ESV that we use here uh, says you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Third word that is used is the divine counsel. The divine counsel. There's a verse in Psalm 82 where it says, God has taken his place in the divine counsel, in the midst of the gods or the Elohim, he holds judgment. The picture being that God, God is an Elohim because he's a supernatural being, but he's like the chief. He's the one that is unlike any other one. And he gathers together in this divine council, almost like, you know, the president sitting down with the joint chiefs of staff and he's, he's called together this meeting and he's going to govern the universe through these spiritual beings. This is, there's a whole list of these types of titles that fall into the divine council. Sons of God, like in Job chapter one, the morning stars in Job 38, holy ones in Deuteronomy 33. It talks about he comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones. It's like a, a militaristic sort of a term. It's the host or the army of heaven, like in first Samuel. Uh, Daniel four calls them the watchers. That's kind of interesting. Or in the new Testament in Colossians one, they're called the powers and authorities. So this big list of all of these titles that like God has this army 
God has an army. Is that reassuring to you to know? God has this, this army, this divine council of these supernatural beings. Two other ones. The seraphim. Any of you guys ever heard that phrase seraphim, that term? Okay. The seraphim, uh, the etymology of it in Hebrew, it's, it's something like the ones who are on fire. The ones who burn. And we see him in Isaiah chapter 6. And I'll, I'll just kind of summarize it. But Isaiah is having this vision. It's the one where the Lord is high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple. You guys remember that passage? We've referenced it before even as we studied John. And it says, above him, above God, stood the seraphim. Each had how many wings? Six. Why does nobody paint the angels with six wings? Why do they always have two wings? And why do they always have like long Fabio-esque blonde hair too? Like what is up with that? Six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And they're calling to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the seraphim, and then the seraphim comes with the coal and cleanses Isaiah's unclean lips. So this is a six-winged fire creature. You don't put that in the children's Bibles, right? It would scare the kids. But even more striking than the seraphim are the cherubim. Cherubim. You guys know about the cherubim? The first time they show up is actually in Genesis 3 when, when God removes Adam and Eve from the garden. It said he put a cherub and a flaming sword to guard the entrance to the garden so that no one could come in. We see them on the Ark of the Covenant. It says they have the wings are touching each other. They're made out of gold. And when they put the Ten Commandments in that Ark of the Covenant box, it has seraphim, I'm sorry, cherubim on top. But we only get the first real description in Ezekiel chapter 1. Just listen to this for a moment. Ezekiel chapter 1. I looked, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with a brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire as if it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. He can't even, he doesn't even know what they are. They're like creatures who are alive. That's all I got. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces and each of them had four wings Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot and they sparkled like highly polished burnished bronze and their wings under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands and the four had their faces and their wings like this. Their wings touched one another and each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. And as for the likeness of their faces, here's where things take a real interesting turn. Each one had a human face. We're like, oh good. Okay. But... The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while the other two covered their bodies. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now, I read this again, and I've known about this passage, and I got just re-offended all over again that in our culture, when we talk about a cherub, we're talking about like a naked, fat little baby. <laughs> like, this, these are the things, like, I need to go back in time like 400 years and be like, stop! This is the description of one of these heavenly creatures, a cherubim. 
not a chubby little fat baby, but a four-faced winged lightning monster that comes out and makes the prophet Ezekiel question his entire life. Like that's what we're talking about. So where do these angels come from? Well, the first thing we can say very clearly is they are created beings. God is alone eternal. Only God has existed for all of eternity. The angels were created. We can see this in Psalm 148 where the psalmist is telling the sun and the moon and the stars and the angels. He says, all of you need to praise the Lord. And in verse five, he says, let them praise the Lord for he commanded and they were created. All of these things, the sun, the moon, the stars, the land, the sea, and yes, the angels. So while they are powerful spiritual beings, they are not equal to God. Even though they are Elohim in the generic sense, they are not the Elohim, like God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the one like, like whom there is no other. Amen? They also were created, we know, before the earth was created. We can see this in Job chapter 38. Job and, Job and God are having a little, uh, a little, well, literally like a come to Jesus meeting. And uh, Job is getting a little talking to and, and God is saying, hey, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when, when all this stuff took place? It, certainly, you know, did you, did you measure the foundations of the earth? And he says, or, or, or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So some point in creation, before the land was made, the angels were created. If you look back through church history, people have lots of fun speculating about these things. One of my favorite, St. Augustine from the, the early church, like in the 300s, he said that the angels were made on the first day of creation. Because God said, let there be light, but he didn't make the sun, moon, and the stars until the fourth day. So Augustine says, well, the light that he created was obviously these beings of light, these, these angels, Augustine says. There's a scholar, uh, if you know um, the Bible Project, sometimes we share those videos out, a guy named Tim Mackey and drawing from other sources. Tim Mackey says, no, it's on the fourth day of creation because the Hebrew mindset, they looked at the, the stars as representatives of these divine beings. And it actually says in Genesis chapter one that they serve as signs pointed to greater realities. So there's a lot of speculation. Somewhere between day one and day four, God made the angels, okay? That much we know. And the most important thing to remember is they are created beings and they are subservient to God. So what do angels do? Well, sorry, it's a wonderful life. They do not make shoes. Uh, that, was, that was in like the opening lines of it's a wonderful life. Oh, Clarence, yeah, we should send him because he's a, he's a shoemaker. Maybe he needs a different job. They don't, they don't make shoes. They aren't wearing shoes. We just said they cover their feet with their wings. We already know that's what's going on. Sorry to break, break your, your theology, your, your folk theology bubble. Oh, by the way, I also, I don't think there is such a thing as a specific guardian angel. The angels of God guard the people of God, yes. But I don't know, that the, it's, it's speculative to say that you have one specific angel that travels around with you. You know, like the bumper stickers, never drive faster than your guardian angel can fly. I don't know that, I don't think that, like physics, I don't, we're not, it's not, it doesn't work that way, okay? But we can know that the angels of God do watch over the people of God because there's three things that they do. The first thing they do is they worship God. We saw that in Isaiah, 
You see it in Revelation chapter seven, before the throne of God, day and night, praising and worshiping and loving God. When we gather together like this on a Sunday morning and the band strikes up the song and we start singing, we're joining with what is already happening in the throne room of God, amen? Which is why it's important, by the way, to try to be here beforehand so you can join with the singing. It's not just some stuff that we do before we get to the quote main event of the sermon. I love preaching. I love being able to preach. I love listening to preaching. But the church service is not the sermon. It's all of what we do together, which includes joining with the angels of heaven in worshiping and praising our God. Can I say that? And you can hear me without like a, like a legalistic heart or something. I just want to encourage you, be here early. And if you get in conversations with people and say, hey, let's, let's go in and worship God. The angels are getting started without us. Let's go sing and then we'll talk afterwards. Can you do that? Can you hear me? Can you hear your pastor on that? I love you. Number two, the angels, they minister to God's people. Hebrews chapter one calls them ministering spirits. Ministering spirits. There's different scenes throughout the scriptures. One, like after Jesus' temptation, it says that the angels came and ministered to him. So they minister to, they, they, they bring God's presence. They bring God's grace. And number three, perhaps most commonly, they deliver messages. We see that in Hebrews chapter two, and we see that in the story of the angel Gabriel. With that foundation in place, let's pick it up in Luke chapter one, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now Gabriel, by the way, he's one of two angels out of the Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels that there are. He's one of two angels that are actually named in the scriptures. Do you know the name of the other one? Michael. Not even the accuser, the enemy, the devil, not even he is given a, a proper name in anywhere in the scripture. But Michael and Daniel, I'm sorry, um, Gabriel both are. Gabriel actually makes his first appearance in the book of Daniel. He shows up to the prophet Daniel and he helps explain some things to him. And so when, 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 Matthew, or sorry, when, when Luke here is writing about the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary, he's drawing from Old Testament tradition saying, it's the same one. This is pretty remarkable that God would send this angel. By the way, Gabriel, if you want to go back like a few verses, the angel Gabriel appears, before he appears to Mary, he appears to a guy named Zechariah. Zechariah is a relative of Mary's and, and Zechariah becomes the father of, of John the baptizer and he comes with a message for him. You guys remember that story? But, but, but Zechariah kind of doesn't believe him. He's kind of like, well, I don't know about this whole, my, my wife, you know, she's, she's old. Like, have you seen her? She's old and she ain't having a baby. And, and Zechariah, <laughs> Zechariah is kind of doubting and, and Gabriel answers him. I love the answer that Gabriel gives to him. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. It's like, ooh, mic drop. And then Gabriel goes, because you doubted, you won't be able to talk for a few months. <laughs> Man, it's like, I just love that. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. What do you got? But he shows up to this virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, if you're a highlighting type, boy, you should highlight these words. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. 
Mary, the woman who is chosen to bear the Savior, it is right that we should honor her. It is right that we should uh, emulate her example. Uh, at times throughout the history of the Christian church, Mary gets elevated too far, almost like a, like a semi-deity sort of status. And that, that should not be. We should honor her. And she is exemplary. Oh my goodness, we'll see you at the end of this section. But did you notice what Gabriel says to her? Go, go, to, go to the next slide. Can you put the next slide up there? Where he says to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. That word favored. Do you know what that word is in the, in the Greek? It's grace. It's charis. It's the exact same word that we translate as grace. Greetings, O favored one. Greetings, O recipient of God's amazing grace. The message of Gabriel starts with grace. Grace is a gift that cannot be earned. You can't do anything in order to receive grace. Any blessing that we receive always begins with God's grace. Amen? So here we see that Mary is a recipient of the favor and the grace of God. And this message that comes out now about Jesus, it's all about God's grace It's not something we earn or something that we accomplish. It's something we're freely given from the heart and the character of God. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Isn't that that common when the angels show up? Oftentimes the people are a little disturbed. When When you're speaking with ones who stand in the presence of God, there's a disconcerting effect that happens. She's trying to sort through this. What, what is this? What are you talking about? And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. More grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's good. Good news. We're going to come back to this at the end. I just want you to just let those words soak in for a moment. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, I want to pause and address this for a moment, this whole idea of the virgin birth. Because this is one of those things that, that in the story of Christmas, sometimes raises objections. How can you believe in this, this book? I mean, obviously right there, this whole virgin birth thing shows us that it's, that it's just nonsense. A couple of things. I want to say a couple of things about this, this briefly. First of all, uh, sometimes people will critique and say, well, like Luke wouldn't have written this stuff down if they just knew more about science. 
They believed in virgin births because they didn't believe in science. Listen, they didn't know maybe about like X and Y chromosomes or cellular division, but they knew how babies were made, okay? And it's like right there in the text, Mary says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Like by the time that, you know, the first century uh, world, like people knew how babies were made, okay? And if any of you young people here today don't know how babies are made, your parents would love to talk to you after I'm done. We'll set up a little area out in the lobby. We'll just, let's just do this. We'll get it over with, okay? So let's not be, like C.S. Lewis said, you know, chronological snobs where we look back on them like, oh, they just didn't know about science. That's why they would write this down. Another criticism sometimes that comes up is people say, oh, well, well, the gospel authors stole that from other myths. There's other myths, other fables, other stories of virgin births throughout human history. And to that, I would say, why would you accuse them of stealing when the book of Ecclesiastes says that God has written eternity on the hearts of men. And it would not surprise me at all to hear other cultures, even ones that are far off from the one true God of the Bible, talking about a hero who would be born of a virgin because God is all about putting hints in place about his plan of redemption before it came to be. We saw that last week with the prophets, amen? And we're going to really see it in a couple weeks when these magi, these foreign uh, wise men from the east show up saying, we're here to worship the Jewish Messiah. Like, what? It would not be surprising at all to think that people would be drawn towards the idea of a hero who was born of a virgin. Number three, can I just say that uh, it's far too arrogant of science to say we don't know that a virgin birth could ever happen? I read an article from the BBC from 2014 talking about virgin births that they have witnessed it in lizards and in sharks. And in fact, the article said, uh, roughly paraphrasing, it happens all the time that lizards and sharks give birth without ever having what you're going to talk about with your kids after the service, right? They haven't made it. They haven't, like, they haven't, they they, they just, they they have a, a snake that's lived in captivity for 14 years and then one day just out of the blue, boom, baby snakes. Like what in the world happened? And so then they started talking about these scientists who started messing with like mice and mammals and they actually successfully got a mouse to reproduce a a virgin birth without the traditional mating. And the article concludes with this. It, It talks about how, you know, researchers today say that it remains highly unlikely and perhaps even impossible for a virgin mammal to naturally produce viable offspring due to some fundamental aspects of their biology But perhaps someday, somewhere, somehow, a mammal will surprise us all. (laughs) And I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, like, what if the Virgin Mary is that mammal? (laughs) We don't know how God orchestrates all these things. Here's the thing that we do know. We do know that God is the one that gives life and being to all things in the universe. And just because we haven't observed it through the lens of science doesn't mean that it does not happen or could not happen. I don't claim to understand the the mechanisms of of, of how all that could work, but it's just maybe not quite as crazy as some skeptics would want us to believe. As Christians, the virgin birth of Jesus is one of those fundamental doctrines of our faith. And if we start to deny the virgin birth, well, then we have to deny the doctrine of scripture. We have to deny the doctrine of the sinlessness of Jesus. There's a whole lot of things that are tied to this, Please don't, as as followers of Jesus, please don't give in to the 
ill-advised pressure that comes from oh so many secular uh, sources to say, oh, that's just rubbish. You have to uh, disregard it. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do I understand how that happened? No. Do I think I could explain it in exhaustive detail? No, I, I can't. But I believe that God's word is true and I believe that Jesus proved all of these things by rising from the dead. What's more, Gabriel says, behold, your relative Elizabeth uh, will in her old age also conceive a son. And this is the, she's six months pregnant. She was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Oh, that's good. Elizabeth, the, the elderly woman who is beyond childbearing age, she reminds us of Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, who, who the, the, the womb could not produce life. Sarah's womb could not produce life. Elizabeth's womb could not produce life. Mary's womb, as it was, the virgin womb, could not produce life. But our God is all about producing life where no one else can produce it. That's our God. They're all signs pointing to Jesus and nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Isn't that a beautiful picture of obedience? What a, what a precious response and what a response to be emulated and to be honored that Mary was obedient. I, whatever you say, contrast that with Zechariah. How can I be sure? Mute. (laughs) Mary, hey, if that's what God says, let's do this. Could you imagine being the angel Gabriel? I I don't know how it it works in the throne room of heaven in the divine council. God, God says, you know, all these prophets, all these prophets delivering all this news. Hey, Gabriel, come here. Come here. It's time. Let's go. Go tell. Start with Zechariah. He needs straightened out. But then go, go talk to Mary. This is a remarkable thing to think about. And I want to share with you a couple of thoughts as I begin to, to, to bring this to a close. But, but there's one really important thing that we might have missed in there. And it's this. The good news only really makes sense when you know the bad news. The good news only truly makes sense when you know the bad news. I got a a text message. We have a a family text thread with my parents and my sister and brother and and their spouses and my wife and I. And and I got a text thread, a text from one of my family members this week that said, hey, uh, good news, there are no cracks in our foundation. Now, if you just got that message just out of the blue, imagine some relative of yours texting you that. I'd be like, okay, cool, I guess, fine, whatever. I'm glad there are no cracks in your foundation. That, yes, that is indeed good news. It makes a lot more sense, though, when you know that my parents live in Anchorage, Alaska, and just over a week ago, they had a 7.2 earthquake. Now, all of a sudden, that text message comes through. That's way better news. It's way better news. If the doctor was to walk in the room and say, you don't have cancer, okay, great. But if it's against the backdrop of knowing that there was some sort of a lump or a mass that they found, that news becomes that much greater. The good news only really makes sense in light of the bad news. Did you guys see the bad news in this passage? It's a little bit hard to see. 
We have to know what's going on behind the scenes. I'll share with you. There's actually two pieces of bad news in this passage. We see it when the angel Gabriel tells Mary in verse 31, you will conceive in your womb, you'll bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why is that bad news? Because if you were here last week, looking in Matthew chapter one, when this same message was delivered to Joseph, it says, she will conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua in Hebrew means God will save. The bad news that precedes this good news is we are in bondage individually to the tyrant ruler of sin. One out of every one human being who is ever born will at some point act in ways that are sinful and contrary to the ways of God. So we need to be rescued. We need to be delivered internally from our sin. Bad news number two, did you notice this? In verses 32 and 33, he says, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. What's the bad news there? That we're ruled by tyrants. The way of the world is not the benevolent dictator. The way of the world is that people who themselves are sinners rise to positions of power and authority and use that power and authority to rule over people. The people in the day of Jesus were crying out for a godly king, a godly leader, the Messiah who would come and would free them from the tyranny of Rome. So the bad news is that we are ruled by tyrants externally and we're ruled by sin internally. The good news is that Jesus is the answer to both. He is the one who died and rose again so that we might be forgiven of our sins. And he is the one who is right now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And one day he will return to establish his throne forever and we will be ruled by Christ Jesus, King Jesus, in a perfected new heavens and new earth for all of eternity. Does that sound good to anybody? That's the hope that we have as Christians. Not just that we can have this internal feeling of peace, but that when Christ returns, his second advent, he will rule and reign forever. The good news only really makes sense when we understand the bad news. The problem is, is that so many of us, we don't want to hear the bad news and we then miss out on the joy and the relief and the freedom and the peace that comes from hearing the good news. The second thing I want to say to you is this. We're more privileged than the angels. Yes, the angel stands in the presence of God. Yes, the angel Gabriel got to deliver this incredible news to the Virgin Mary. But there's a passage in 1 Peter that just still blows my mind every time that I read it. In 1 Peter, he's, he's talking about salvation and he says that there were these prophets. They, they prophesied about the grace that would come to you. They were, they were searching and carefully investigating. We looked at this last week, the prophets. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the, the glories that would fall. These, these prophets are really searching it out. Jesus himself is speaking to the prophets about what he's coming. He's coming to live and to die and to rise again. 
It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things, he says, have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from angels. And then there's this little add-on afterthought. He goes, you got to hear the gospel. All the things the prophets were looking at, it's all come true. It's all made sense. And by the way, angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. That blows my mind. That we who have heard the gospel message proclaimed. We who have heard the coming of the Savior, the receiving of his grace through his death and resurrection, the angels are jealous of us. Is that remarkable to anyone else here? I I say this to you. Don't take the gospel message lightly. If we're making the angels jealous, we really ought to pay attention to this message the salvation that was declared to us. For those of you who have been Christians, maybe for years, maybe for decades, you've, you've walked with the Lord. I plead with you, never get tired of hearing the gospel message. Don't let your heart grow cold that Christ frees us from our sin and Christ breaks the bondage that comes through human sin and tyranny. Christ has come into the world the first time to deal with sin. He will come into the world again to rule and reign forever. The angels wish that they could get a glimpse of these things. Holy smokes. So two thoughts. Number one, this good news requires a response. This good news requires a response. If you're here today and you've never responded to this good news of Jesus, I'm inviting you, I'm pleading with you, respond. That same message of grace that Gabriel came to Mary with, you have received favor from God, you have received grace from God, that same invitation is for you today. To receive his grace, to come into right relationship with God, not on the basis of anything that you have done, but purely on the basis of his loving, kind, merciful heart that comes through our Savior, his death, his resurrection. Respond. And even for those of you who have been Christians for years, you still need to respond. And in particular, I think that one of the ways that we're called to respond is we're called to be an angelos. We're called to be a messenger because this good news must be shared. Amen? This is not just good news that the angel Gabriel gets to deliver. It is good news that we get to deliver. If the good news has really taken root in your heart, then we ought to be like those of us who can't wait to tell somebody on Christmas what we got for them in their present. But it's even better because it's the greatest gift the world has ever seen. The grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sin. The breaking of bondage and oppression in the name of our Savior Jesus. We got to tell somebody. We got to tell somebody. Lord Jesus, I pray as we begin to turn our hearts towards a time of response now, that you would begin to put on our hearts how we are to respond. Jesus, as we respond through uh, the, the celebration of the Lord's table, as we respond through singing songs and hymns to you, God, I pray that you would also prepare us to respond as we leave here this week. Who do we need to tell this gospel message to? We thank you. Lord God, that you sent the angels to share this good news. We thank you that we have received this good news and now we're in a place even the angels are jealous of and they long to get a glimpse into these things. God, would you help us to respond to you now? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I'll invite Pastor Shane to lead us in communion now.
Well, as we prepare to receive communion, the Lord's Supper together, let me read for us from the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul reminds us of Jesus' instructions to his disciples concerning this memorial meal that we share together each week. Paul saying this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Sound City, as we receive these instructions from the Apostle Paul and from Jesus this morning, we're being called to remember, to remember Jesus' body broken for us, to remember Jesus' blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And then we're being asked here in 1 Corinthians to now examine ourselves as well before we eat the bread and drink the cup. So as we consider today's message about the good news of Jesus delivered by angels, let's do that very thing. Let's take a few moments in quiet prayer before God to examine our own hearts a bit. Then when you're ready, uh, you can go ahead and receive the communion elements, and then afterwards, we'll stand together again and we'll join the angels in singing songs of praise together. But that all starts with us spending a few moments in quiet prayer now. So let's examine our hearts together as the band plays uh, while we do it, and then uh, we'll move on after that. <laughs> 